speeds up Driving when the sun goes down The hum of 18 wheels Lord, that's a lonely sound I spend all day Chasing that old white line I've been on the road so long I've lost track of time Hey friends, this is Gary Rayburn of Lonesome Road Ministries and we've got an awesome program for you. I know you're going to enjoy it today and you're going to want to get more copies of this. So give us a call, 618-383-2107 or log on to lonesomeroad.org or you can email me at gary.lonesomeroad at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you. Now sit back, listen, and enjoy today's program from Lonesome Road Ministries, Church on the Road. Give us a call. We look forward to hearing from you. I keep those wheels turning from town to town. There's so much I gotta see. I gotta look around. I got diesel smoke rolling. From two chrome stacks, my address is 408-414, a big blue Mac. Now it don't matter where I'm going, I just gotta drive. I have the white line fever to the day that I die. I said 18 wheels rolling on the road, it is my life. Welcome to Words We Speak, Lessons on Building with Rick Nielsen. Rick is the Executive Director of Blueprint for Life and is a nationally known speaker and entertainer, as well as being actively involved with the Bill Glass Prison Ministries. Now, like some of the most successful people in America, you are about to join Rick Nielsen as he informs, motivates, and inspires with Words We Speak. I wish you'd never been born! Can't you do anything right? You you keep acting like that, you'll end up in prison someday. Oh, shut up, stupid. You'll never amount to anything. You're a loser. We've all heard that expression and probably found ourselves saying it at one time or another growing up. But if I were to use that expression today, I would change it to, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words that are negative will always hurt me. And that's what this message is all about. The powerful effect the words we speak have on people's lives, negatively or positively. In 1987, I became actively involved with an organization from Dallas, Texas called the Bill Glass Prison Ministry. Since 1972, this ministry is shared in more than 500 prisons nationwide. Tension-filled prisons are often changed into peaceful meeting grounds as Bill, a former all-pro defensive end with the Cleveland Browns, and special guest athletes challenge inmates to grow physically, mentally, and spiritually. All of us involved in the Bill Glass Prison Ministry come at our own expense, and I've had the thrill of working with many of the best athletes and coaches in the world, along with hundreds of the most committed Christian laypeople across America who serve as counselors and share their faith in prison during these life-changing weekends. The combination of superstar athletes who provide very entertaining programs and lay counselors who share for three days on the prison grounds, including the cell blocks, the yard, lockdown cells, death row units, and in the chow hall, plus the fact that they've paid their own expenses to come, makes this one of the most effective prison ministries in America today. Having been on these weekends one week each month since 1987, I've been in well over 100 prisons across the country. I would like to share with you some fascinating stories about prisons, some of the amazing and famous inmates I've met, and the incredible world of life behind bars. But today, 
I share a message that, believe it or not, inmates have taught me through my work in their world during all these weekends. And that simple message is this. The words we speak will have a definite impact on the direction of our lives and on the direction of others. Words can hurt us, and so it's important that we be careful what we say to ourselves and to each other, because inmates have proven to me that we tend to become exactly what we tell ourselves we'll become based on what others tell us we'll be. When I first began visiting prisons, I was intrigued by the large number of inmates wearing tattoos. Almost every inmate had a tattoo of some type, but there was one tattoo that I saw over and over on many of them. It was a tattoo that said, born to lose. The more I saw it, the more it bothered me. And the more I thought about it, the more I began to wonder why a person would wear a tattoo like that. You see, I believe we're not born winners, and we're not born losers. We're born choosers. And our choices in life have made us what and who we are today. I've always wondered why someone would choose to tattoo themselves permanently with this negative expression. So I began to ask every inmate wearing this particular tattoo, why did you choose the born to lose tattoo? You know, it was fascinating. Their answers were identical across the board. It was like listening to a broken record. Most inmates told me that when they were growing up, the only kind of comments they ever heard from people were negative. Comments like these, you're a loser, man. You'll never amount to anything. Can't you do anything right? You're worthless. You're nothing but trouble. And 90% of the inmates in America today tell me they heard this comment often growing up. If you keep acting like that, you're going to end up in prison someday. Is it any wonder they ended up incarcerated? I believe most inmates are in prison today because they were programmed to be there from their early childhood days. They never had what I call a builder in their lives, a person who affirmed, loved, respected, and encouraged them. Instead, they were criticized, ridiculed, put down, and left out so many times they missed the path to a strong, healthy self-image and a successful life. You know, for many of them, the worst put-down of all was the one they put on themselves. I'm not good enough. I can't do that. I'm too stupid. I'm just a loser. And unfortunately, we do tend to become exactly what we tell ourselves we'll become and what others tell us we'll become. We need to be careful what we say to ourselves and to each other. We must carefully choose the words we speak. Those negative verbal attacks coming at us over and over are like little drops of water in a bucket. They don't seem like much, but when enough of them are pooled together, one day the bucket gets full and the next drop causes the bucket to overflow. That same scenario with verbal put-downs could send a person straight to the tattoo shop for a born-to-lose tattoo, which becomes a permanent reminder of his destiny. As I speak to audiences all over this country, when I give this message, I look closely into people's eyes and see many faces saying to me, Rick, I know exactly what you're talking about because all my life people have put me down and made me feel less than important. And it hurts. And it takes years for those kinds of internal scars to heal. Sometimes they never do. It reminds me of the little girl who asked her mom which was worse, lying or stealing. Her mom told her they were both very bad. But later the little girl told her mom she thought about it and she thought lying was worse. Because if you steal, you can always take it back or pay for it. But a lie, that's forever. You can't take words back. We all need builders in our lives. Sometimes life is hard even when we're not alone. But having to tackle it by ourselves with no one in our corner to cheer us on is tough. Every month I meet many men and women behind bars who grew up in environments where they were never encouraged and the results were devastating. They remind me how difficult it is to climb the ladder to success without encouragement along the way. Knowing the value of encouragement and builders in my own life, I'm trying to develop a habit of putting others up, not down. Building does make a positive difference. Putting people down always produces negative results. The suicide rate is extremely high in this country, and psychologists say what often pushes people to the point of taking their own lives is a negative cutting remark from someone they thought was their last friend in the whole world. Even as I speak, they're dropping like flies. Many might still be with us if a builder had shown up at a crucial point during their struggle. You never know the long-term effect your words might have on a certain person at any given time. Over the years, I've visited over a dozen death row cell blocks in our nation's prison system, and it's been an interesting experience to work with those people. They have committed horrendous crimes. I can't imagine using a gun, knife, or other weapon to kill someone. It's just inconceivable to me. Remember when Moses brought down a commandment that said, Thou shalt not kill, 
That commandment would obviously apply to physical acts of violence that result in death, but think about it. Couldn't that commandment also apply to killing someone's joy, their enthusiasm, incentive, faith in themselves or faith in others, killing their hopes or reputation? A look, a snicker, a comment, or maybe no comment at all may accomplish the same result. Not only can you kill with a sharp knife, but also with a sharp pencil or a sharp tongue. Your victim may not die physically, but you have killed them just the same by killing the spirit within them, the spirit that drives the rest of us to make something of ourselves. The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 18, verse 21, the tongue has the power of life and death, and those who love it will eat its fruit. The tongue can bring death or success. And in the third chapter of James, we read in verses four through six, the tongue is like the rudder of a ship. It is small, but has tremendous power. Verse 10 goes on to say, out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. These things ought not be so. Bill Glass tells a great story of tags placed on injured servicemen shipped back to the States from the Vietnam War. A red tag on their toe meant they probably would die, so don't pay much attention to them. Get to them only if time permits. But a green tag on their toe indicated they had a good chance for survival, and the doctors and nurses were instructed to keep a close eye on them. Servicemen knew the difference in the tags and seemed to respond accordingly. But then one day a man was shipped in with a red tag, and he happened to be the fiancé of one of the nurses. This was her husband-to-be. When she saw the red tag on his toe, she became terribly upset and quickly changed it to a green one. Guess what? He survived. Since it worked with him, she decided to change everybody's red tag to a green tag, and many who were supposed to die survived. How we are tagged often determines what we become. What kind of tag are you wearing today? Green or red? Winner or loser? The words we speak and those that are spoken to us determine the kind of tag we wear and whether we become winners or losers in life. I also heard Glass tell a story about an umpire's convention where a famous retiring umpire was honored as the umpire of the year. After accepting the award, his colleagues began chanting, speech, speech. And the crusty old veteran stood at the podium in front of hundreds of his peers and gave these words of wisdom. Some is balls and some is strikes, but they ain't nothing till I call them. <laughs> Believe it or not, his little speech is a lot like our lives. We're all born with a desire to travel down a road in life that leads to success, joy, happiness, and love, but we can easily be discouraged and end up on a road that leads to misery, heartache, loneliness, despair, frustration, and pain. And the road we end up on is almost always the road we're told we'll be on. The words we speak do make a difference. From the moment we are born, we all need builders in our lives, giving us constant doses of encouragement, love, and affirmation. In a book called The Self and Pilgrimage, Earl Loomis Jr. tells an amazing story about Emperor Frederick, who ruled the Roman Empire in the 13th century. The emperor wanted to conduct a controlled experiment with the young children of slaves in order to figure out what language Adam and Eve spoke in the Garden of Eden. According to his logic, if the children never heard a human voice, then the language they would eventually speak would be the same as that of Adam and Eve. <laughs> now, you've got to admit this is fairly primitive logic, but remember it was the 13th century. In order to ensure that none of the children would ever hear the sound of a human voice, the nurses in charge of the children were given strict orders to maintain complete silence while caring for them. The children were given the best of food, warmth, and care, but they never heard any spoken words. They were given a minimal amount of touch or any other kind of communication. At the end of the story, Loomis wrote, It is tremendously difficult for a woman to be silent with a child. Nonetheless, the nurses succeeded. According to the account, not one of them uttered a single word to any of the children. In other words, the experimental conditions were a success, but the children all died. Without encouragement and affirmation, the outcome is always negative and often tragic. I also read in a newspaper article in the Des Moines Register in April of 1988 the report of a nationwide survey based on interviews with top management executives and personnel directors of 100 of America's leading corporations. The survey, conducted by Robert Half International, concluded that good workers rarely quit their jobs over salary or benefits, but 70% of the better employees who quit did so because they felt they didn't receive enough recognition. I like what American journalist William Norris once said, if your lips would keep from slips, five things observe with care, to whom you speak, of whom you speak, and how and when and where. Or ask yourself these three questions before you speak to others. 
Is it true? Is it necessary? And is it kind? Maybe one of the saddest stories I ever read about the negative effects put-downs can have on a person's life came out of a 1987 People magazine article on Mark Chapman, the man who shot John Lennon. Evidently, he was a very sensitive person, and he was asked how he felt when he was put down. He said, It feels like you're a little dog, a little animal, not respected, and nobody cares for you. They just use you and every little thing that happens to you. You worry about it for three to four days. Things that happened to me 10 or 15 years ago still haunt me, things people did to me. I still can't figure it out why they would do those things. The article went on to say that starting in third or fourth grade in school, Mark felt like a misfit. Other boys called him names, and feeling helpless to fight back and so alone, he retreated into his own private world of make-believe. Oh, how the words we speak can carry such a negative influence on a life and make such a difference in the type of person we become. After I read that article, I couldn't help but wonder if Mark would have been different if he'd had just one builder in his life, one teacher, one neighbor, one classmate to affirm his positive skills and abilities. Perhaps John Lennon would still be alive today. I could go on and on with stories illustrating the negative effects that spoken words have had on people's lives. And even as I speak, you may be thinking of people in your own life who have had difficulty in finding the path to success and developing a positive self-image because they've constantly been criticized and put down. But in the remainder of this message, I want to focus on the positive and the fantastic results that can occur in people's lives when building does take place and love and encouragement are provided in heavy doses. Builders always win. I'm convinced of it. Listen to this great story. A little old lady moved from the big city to a small town and one day was visiting the local drugstore. She was not impressed by the service. The druggist took forever to wait on her, and when he finally did, he seemed disinterested, rude, and unfriendly. She took out her frustration on the checkout girl. You call this small-town hospitality? I'm used to better treatment, and in the future, I expect it. A week later, she returned to the drugstore. But this time, the druggist treated her like a queen. He greeted her with a big smile. He came out from behind the counter and shook her hand. He told her how happy he was to see her in his store again and what a lovely dress she had on. He told her he hoped she liked their little town and to please let him know if there was anything he could do to help her get settled. Then he filled her order promptly and efficiently. The checkout girl stood at her cash register smiling as the little old lady stepped up to pay her bill. I see you told the druggist how poor I thought the service was around here. Well, no, the checkout girl said. I told him you were amazed to find such an efficient, well-run drugstore in such a small town and how you thought he bore a striking resemblance to Burt Reynolds. Talk about a builder. This checkout girl knew the value of kind words. So the next time you feel the urge to criticize someone, try a compliment instead. Mark Twain once said he could live for 60 days off one compliment. And in an article in Parents Magazine, Phyllis Thoreau said, One of the commodities in life most people can't get enough of is compliments. The ego is never so intact that one can't find a hole in which to plug a little praise. But compliments, by their nature, are highly biodegradable and tend to dissolve hours or days after we first receive them, which is why we can always use another. There are some beautiful Bible verses that speak to this very issue. Listen to verse 1 of the 15th chapter of Proverbs. A soft answer turns away wrath, but harsh words stir up anger. You may live to regret harsh words and biting criticism, but you'll never regret being kind. And Proverbs chapter 18 verse 20 reads, From the fruit of his mouth a man's stomach is filled, with the harvest from his lips he is satisfied. Solomon is saying that positive speech satisfies a person. If you look up the word encourage in the dictionary, you'll find to impart courage or confidence, to give support to. And every day we ought to be constantly on the lookout for people who need a real boost with their self-confidence. We need to practice the art of being talent scouts, scouting out the talent in others and encouraging them through the words we speak. There's another Bible verse found in 1 Corinthians, the 10th chapter, that talks about giving our courage away. It says, spur one another on to love and good deeds. Encourage one another. And I've discovered the greatest benefit of encouraging others is that your own self-image is strengthened. Because when you build up others, you build up yourself. I speak often to students who are hospitalized in a local ward for troubled adolescents. They are admitted for almost every sort of problem you could imagine. I do magic for them and share a message geared at trying to help them through this difficult time in their lives. I always leave feeling like I've been able to help them a little bit. 
I recall one time in particular, though, that was extra special. After my program, a 15-year-old boy seemed especially touched and grateful that I'd come. One look at him told me he was the kind of teenager who probably got picked on and made fun of almost every day at school. The doctors allowed him to spend an extra few minutes with me before he was to report back to his therapy sessions. As we sat together alone and away from the rest of the staff and patients, he continued to thank me and tell me how special it was that I would take time for him. He made me feel great. Before I left, I told him I appreciated his gratitude and his willingness to express it to me. I also told him great people are always grateful. I said, son, you're a real winner. And he immediately reached out and hugged me and began crying on my shoulder and he whispered, no one's ever told me I was a winner at anything. Thank you. Thank you. And again, I was reminded that the words we speak can make all the difference in the world in how people feel about themselves. Shortly after this memorable experience at the Troubled Adolescent Ward, I read this great story from Tim Hansel's book, What Kids Need Most in a Dad. It provides another powerful example of the difference a builder can make. Hansel tells a story about a teenager who had an obvious birthmark over most of his face, but it didn't seem to bother him. His self-esteem seemed secure. He got along with the other students and was well-liked. He didn't seem to be self-conscious about the large birthmark on his face, which was very obvious to everyone else. Finally, someone asked him, how come that birthmark doesn't bother you? He just smiled and said, when I was a little boy, my father told me it was there for two reasons. It was where an angel kissed me, and the angel had done that so my father could always find me in a crowd. My dad told me this so many times with so much love that as I grew up, I actually began to feel sorry for my friends because they weren't kissed by the angel like I was. Words are such a powerful tool. They can encourage or discourage, accept or deny, create hope or depression. Someone once said to me, be kind. Everyone you meet is fighting a hard battle, and there are people everywhere in need of a pat on the back, an uplifting compliment or a word of encouragement to keep their hopes and dreams alive. Think of how much more people could accomplish if they were encouraged. When Nathaniel Hawthorne was fired from his job in a custom house, he went home and told his wife he was a failure. But instead of being discouraged, she responded to the news with a smile and said, now you can write your book. And Hawthorne said, great, what will we live on while I'm writing it? To his amazement, his wife opened a drawer and pulled out a large bankroll. Where on earth did you get that, he said. And she told him, I've always known that you were a man of genius. I knew that someday you would write a masterpiece. So every week, out of the money you gave me for groceries, I saved a little. There is enough money here to last us for one year. Because of the trust, confidence, and belief she had in her husband, Nathaniel Hawthorne proceeded to write one of the greatest novels of American literature, The Scarlet Letter. Walt Whitman struggled for years to get anyone interested in his poetry, and he became very discouraged. One day, though, he received a letter which read, Dear Sir, I am not blind to the worth of the wonderful gift of Leaves of Grass. I find it the most extraordinary piece of wit and wisdom that America has yet contributed. I greet you at the beginning of a great career. And the letter was signed by Ralph Waldo Emerson. Emerson put a lot of time and effort into what he wrote to Whitman because not only did he want to encourage Whitman, but he wanted to do it memorably. When two-time Olympic pole vault champion Bob Richards was young, his hero was baseball great Lou Boudreau. After hearing Boudreau speak at a banquet, Richards brought him a baseball to autograph. Boudreaux wrote on the ball, to Bob Richards, someday you're going to be the greatest. Ironically, 24 years later, they were inducted together into the Illinois Athletic Hall of Fame. And then there was Muhammad Ali, one of the greatest fighters of all time, who stood before many a microphone chanting, I am the greatest, I am the greatest. Even though it was obnoxious, he said it so often he convinced his opponents, as well as himself, that he was the greatest. And many literally fell over in the ring for him. One of my favorite coaches of all time is basketball great John Wooden. He used to tell his players that when they scored, they were to smile, wink, or nod to the player who had passed them the ball. One time a player asked Wooden, Coach, what if he's not looking? And Wooden smiled and said, Don't worry, he'll look. And Wooden was right. We all thrive on recognition. When Cheryl was a little girl, she loved going to the mailbox every day because her mailman would always say to her, Hi, Cheryl. How's my little Miss America today? His words rang true in 1980 when Cheryl Pruitt was crowned Miss America. 
Then there's the great story of Willie Davis, the former NFL All-Pro with the Green Bay Packers. When he was asked how he felt, he would always reply, I feel good. I got that winning feeling. Willie became known as Dr. Feelgood, and his attitude was contagious enough with his teammates to help make the Packers the powerhouse team of the National Football League in that decade. Several years after his retirement, sports writers caught up with Willie as he visited his former coach, the great Vince Lombardi, as Lombardi lay dying in the hospital. They asked him, Willie, why was your coach so special to you? And Willie said, because that man made me feel important. Vince Lombardi himself had a gift of making others feel good and bringing out the best in people. He was always tough on his players, but never disciplined a player without later affirming him. One day, he'd chewed out a player who'd missed several blocking assignments. After practice, Lombardi stalked into the locker room. He found the player sitting in his locker, head down, dejected. Lombardi roughed up his hair, patted him on the shoulder, and said, One of these days, you're going to be the best offensive guard in the NFL. That player was Jerry Kramer, who says he carried that positive image of himself for the rest of his career. Lombardi's encouragement had a tremendous impact on his whole life. Jerry Kramer went on to become a Green Bay Packer Hall of Famer and a member of the NFL's all-50-year team. In each of these stories, we can clearly see the powerful and positive effect our words can have on people. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 11 says that we are to edify one another. And probably one of the greatest examples I've ever seen of putting shoe leather to this verse occurred in a prison cell block in Georgia. It's a true story that absolutely convinced me building works. When we choose to use words that edify, build up, praise, and encourage, miracles can happen. Jackson, Georgia is a small town, but on the edge of that little town sits a large prison called the Jackson Diagnostic and Classification Center. About every 90 days, 2,000 inmates are tested and evaluated in this institution before being sent out to various prisons all over the state of Georgia to begin serving their sentences. It was at this prison that I experienced firsthand the positive difference building makes in people's lives. It was Friday night, and I was resting in my hotel room after spending a long day with the inmates when I heard a knock on my door. It was Bunny Martin, our prison ministry director and a good friend. He said, Rick, I'd like to ask a favor of you. They've agreed to let five men into H-Block at Jackson tomorrow, and I'd like you to go with us. I said, H-Block? What's that? He said, Rick, that's their death row unit. It sits off in one corner of Jackson, and they have about 100 men in there. I said, Bunny, I'm not too sure. I'd only been involved in prison work about a year and had heard war stories about death row units. It's tough duty. These guys could be obnoxious, rude, spit or urinate on you, throw their food. I really wasn't sure I was ready for that, let alone to counsel with them. But Bunny reassured me by saying, Rick, you're right, it'll be a challenge. But if you'll bring your magic along and entertain them, I think you'll find them to be very receptive. You're a good counselor, and with the magic as an entree, you'll be fine. We need you to come, and they need to hear about the Lord. I told Bunny to plan on me and that I'd see him in the morning. I slept very little that night. Morning came all too soon, and as I sat in the car on the hour-long drive to Jackson, all I could think about was that as a little boy, if someone would have told me I'd be doing card tricks and sharing my faith in Christ on a death row cell block in a Georgia prison, I'd have told them they were crazy. When I became a Christian in 1968, I told the Lord I wanted to serve him anytime and anywhere, but the closer we got to the prison, the more I thought maybe I should strike a new deal. After an hour-long security check, I found myself standing by the final security gate that led to death row. There by the door stood an officer who by the end of that day would gain my respect and admiration. Bill Treadwell had worked seven years on H Block at Jackson and was presently the captain. I read more about him later in Mike Lessie's book, The Forbidden Zone. Lessie did a report on death by execution and met Treadwell while doing research at Jackson for the story. He reported that Captain Treadwell was referred to as the father and mother of death row. Lessie stated that Treadwell was like a doctor in a cancer ward who dispensed hope and praise like medicine. Later that day, I would witness firsthand just how accurate that description of Treadwell was. His policy in running death row could be summed up in three words, fairness, firmness, and respect. He was a short man with neatly trimmed jet black hair, thick lens glasses, and a neatly pressed uniform. He greeted us in his Georgian accent. Gentlemen, we glad you're here. My name is Captain Bill Treadwell. I'm the chief security officer here in H Block. This is death row. Now let me get one thing straight. We have 116 men here, 
And I don't condone what any of these men have done. They murdered, and that's wrong. And most of them are going to pay for it with their lives in the chair. My job is to keep them locked up and prepare them for that time. But I also want you to know these are my men, and I love my men. I'm very proud of my men. Now you can relax because these men will all be very well behaved. I looked over at one of the other counselors going in with me. Well behaved? This guy's worked here too long and his elevator doesn't go to the top. <laughs> he said, these men would treat you with respect and dignity. I looked back at my friend, see what I mean? And he said, these men would be grateful you've come and by the end of this day, you'll be as proud of these men as I am. Now you let me know if I can help you in any way. I'm here to serve. The message you're bringing to these men is the most important message they could ever hear. It contains the hope they're looking for and desperately need. Thank you from the bottom of my heart for coming and caring about my men. With that, Captain Treadwell took his big metal key and unlocked the turnstile on that heavy prison gate, opened the door, moved us in, closed the gate, locked it, and there we were in H-block, imprisoned on George's death row. We divided forces, and I found myself alone at the bottom of a small stairway that led up to the first row of cell blocks. It was a rainy, damp, dark, and cold February morning, and the whole cell block had an eerie silence to it. I gazed up the stairway and knew that in every one of those cells sat a man, 23 and a half hours a day, who in the back of his mind continually dealt with the thought of the chair and if he would end his life in it, and if so, when? What would I say to them? I was prepared for the worst. Under my breath, I simply prayed this simple prayer, Lord, help me to make a difference, ease my anxieties, protect me from harm, and teach me something today. I then made my way up the stairway to the cells. In the first cell I came to, a man was sleeping. I left him alone. In the second cell, another man asleep. And in the third cell, a man was sitting on the edge of his bunk, chin buried in his hands, elbows on his knees, a frown on his face, staring at the gray concrete walls of his small cell. I feel the most comfortable when I'm entertaining, so I took a deck of cards out of my jacket pocket, fanned them through the cell bars, and said, Excuse me, sir, pick a card, any card. And he looked at me like my elevator didn't go to the top. All of a sudden, he started yelling at me. Hey, what are you doing in here, man? Who do you think you are anyway? How'd you get up to these cells? What's going on up here? He scared me to death. I was so shook up as I began to put the cards back in my pocket, I spilled them all over the concrete catwalk in front of his cell. I said, I'm sorry, man. I'll be out of here in a second. Just let me pick up my cards. I don't want to bother you. I'm sorry. Just then, he knelt down and through the cell bars, he began to help me pick up my cards. As he did, he apologized. I'm sorry I yelled at you. I really didn't mean to scare you. Please don't leave. I was just very surprised to see someone here. You see, I've been locked up in this cell for almost 10 years now and you're the first visitor I've talked to in eight years. I just didn't know what to do or say. By the way, what are you doing with those cards? I told him I was a speaker and a magician and just wanted to show him a card trick. He told me he'd love to see one, and for the next half hour, I entertained him. With each trick, he became more relaxed and even began to smile and then laugh. After one particularly good trick, he slapped his knee, laughed, and broke into a grin from ear to ear. I said, it's good to see you laugh. You have a great smile. And then all of a sudden, he sat down on his bed and began to fight back tears. I said, I'm sorry, did I say something to offend you? And he said, no, you told me I had a great smile. That's probably the nicest thing anyone has ever said to me. And I realized I was with a lonely, hurting man who grew up without any builders in his life. In fact, he wore a Born to Lose tattoo. About that time, the man asked me if I'd like a cup of coffee. And in that cold, damp cell block, the thought of a hot cup of coffee sounded pretty good. I told him I'd get Captain Treadwell to see if he could bring us some, and the man just laughed. He said, Rick, you're forgetting where you are. This is death row. There aren't any vending machines or cafeterias back here. You can't just order a cup of coffee anytime you want to. He said, this will be my treat. And for the next ten minutes, I sat fascinated in front of this man's cell, watching him make coffee using toilet paper, Coke cans, and a small plastic bag of instant coffee crystals. After boiling the water in a Coke can, by suspending it over another Coke can filled with compressed sheets of toilet paper, which he burned to produce the heat, he poured the hot water in an old dirty plastic cup filled with instant coffee, stirred it with his finger, set it on the floor in front of me, 
and with a grin apologized that he had no cream or sugar. He then started the whole process over for his cup, methodically counting off exactly the correct number of sheets of toilet paper to compress in the can, lighting it, boiling the water, pouring it into a cup of coffee crystals, and of course, stirring it with his finger. So there we sat, sipping our coffee, two strangers fast becoming friends. Now I'll be the first to admit it wasn't the best cup of coffee I ever had, but it ended up being one of the most memorable and meaningful. As we drank our coffee, he told me that one of the experiences he really missed since being incarcerated was visiting with people over a good cup of coffee and that it had been so long he'd almost forgotten what it was like. Then after a few moments of silence, my inmate friend asked me, You said you were a speaker. Do you speak to a lot of different people? I said, Yeah, of all occupations and all ages. I use the magic as a platform to bring a message that encourages people and points them in a successful direction in life. And I share my Christian faith whenever I have the opportunity. I really enjoy my work. He said, I wish I could speak to people about how to be successful and avoid a life like mine. But unfortunately, the only time I'll ever get to leave this cell permanently is to go to that building over there. He pointed out his window to a small building across the yard. That's where the chair is, Rick. Someday, and it may not be too far away, they're going to take me from this cell, strap me in that chair, and pull the switch. And I'll deserve every bit of electricity that runs through my body. I foolishly wasted my life away, and here I sit. He said, you know, Rick, sitting in this cell almost every hour of every day for the last 10 years, I've had plenty of time to think. One day I was lying on my bunk sort of daydreaming, and I dreamed that one of those magic bottles rolled into my cell. You know, the kind you rub and a magic genie comes out and grants you one wish? I thought for the longest time, and do you know what my wish would be? I said, sure, that's easy. You'd wish you could get out of here. He said, no. Actually, what I'd wish for would be to go back to a place I read about in this poem. And he pulled out an old wrinkled sheet of paper and asked me to read it. And the poem went like this. I wish there were some wonderful place called the land of beginning again, where all my heartaches and all my poor selfish griefs could be cast out the door like some tired old coat and never put on again. Rick, if I could just have a chance to start my life over, I think I could be successful the second time around because I've thought about some things I'd do differently and some better choices I'd make. And those new changes would make all the difference in the world. And if I could speak to people like you do, I'd tell them what I think it takes to be successful in life. Unfortunately, I'll never have that chance. We only get one life, and we can only live it one day at a time. We can never go back and rewrite the pages of the days we've already lived. I said, I'm curious. What would you do differently if you could start over? His answer made a lot of sense. Let me describe in my own words what he told me he would do differently if he could go back to the land of beginning again. He told me, Rick, first I'd get a better education. I dropped out of school in the third grade. I never learned to read or write. I didn't take advantage of opportunities I had to learn, and without a good education, jobs are hard to get. So I resorted to other ways to make ends meet, most of them illegal, the kind of things that sooner or later will land you in jail. I told him I agreed and mentioned that when I speak in schools, I use catchphrases like, the more you know, the higher you go. And money spent on the brain is never spent in vain, and readers are leaders, to remind young people of the value of a quality education. Successful people never stop learning. He went on to say, the second thing I'd do would be to stay totally away from drugs and alcohol. Ask any guy on this cell block how he got here, and he'll tell you it all started with that first cigarette, that first drink, or that first joint, and before they knew it, addiction got its ugly claws in them and wouldn't let go. He asked me, Rick, why are people so foolish to keep taking drugs? I told him I didn't have a good answer, but there are never any success stories when it comes to drugs and alcohol, only stories of pain and failure. Drugs and alcohol are a part of almost every inmate's story of how they wound up in prison. All too often, the bottle ends up the winner and we end up the loser. I'm convinced kicks always have kickbacks. He said, Rick, I'd also pay more respect to authority. I learned too late that authority is placed in our lives for our own good, not for punishment, and it will work for us if we'll let it and at least meet it halfway. I used to think my parents were so strict, and I learned too late, they were that way because they loved me. And if those teachers thought they were going to tell me what to do, they better think again. I wasn't about to let them run my life. I totally rejected authority 
and it cost me my freedom. Now I know that freedom isn't free. It comes from being obedient to authority. Obedience builds trust, and my disobedience caused people to never trust me. Finally, I would try to be more grateful. I grew up expecting that everyone owed me something, and even when I did get what I wanted, I was never satisfied and always wanted more. A selfish attitude won't get you very far in life and will make you miserable most of the time. I remember people who were grateful. They had a different attitude than I did and usually seemed happy. They were givers, not takers. And anybody in this joint will tell you takers always end up losers. When you end up in a situation like I'm in, and your most valuable possessions are toilet paper, toothpaste, a hot cup of coffee, a letter, a book, or even a pencil, you realize how much you really had. In prison, you tend to develop a different attitude about gratefulness. I agreed with him and told him I've also noticed that great people are always grateful. As a boy, I remember watching a TV show every morning before school called Captain Kangaroo. Captain and Mr. Green Jeans reminded me every day to say please and thank you. Now as a magician, people ask me if I use any magic words. And two magic words, in my opinion, that really do work are please and thank you. But it seems like people have forgotten how to be grateful, and especially in expressing it to others. I thanked him for sharing with me and told him I would spread his message to as many people as I could as I continued my speaking career. I thought he had a lot of wisdom for a man who dropped out of school in the third grade. And although his suggestions were good, I felt he left out the most important one of all, the decision to commit his life to Christ. I asked him if he had ever invited Christ to be his Lord and Savior, and he told me he hadn't. So I shared with him what it meant to me to be a Christian and encouraged him to think about making that commitment himself. He was genuinely interested and begged me to share more. And before I left his cell, my new friend gave his life to Christ. What an exciting way to conclude this first visit on death row. Just then, Captain Treadwell came by and reminded me there were a lot of other men to see, and he wanted to be sure each one had a chance to see a little of my magic. Come on, Rick. I want you to meet all my men. I'm so proud of them. As we walked to the next set of cells, I told him about the man's decision to accept Christ and the unique way he made the coffee for me. Suddenly, Treadwell stopped. He put his hand on my shoulder and, wiping a tear from his eye, quietly thanked me for the time I'd spent with the inmate. He also explained that toilet paper is one of the most valuable commodities on death row. They only get so much each week. And I realized that inmate sacrificed a generous portion to make my coffee just so I would stay at his cell and visit with him. I felt the tears well up in my eyes, too. For nine hours, Captain Treadwell hosted our team in his domain, H-Block. And when the time came for us to leave the cell block, I had spoken to nearly all of his men. As I was walking back to the control center to leave, I was amazed. Every one of those inmates was courteous, well-behaved, and treated me with respect. I've never been treated better anywhere. All of them were grateful I'd come, and many shed tears when I left their cells. I wondered, why are these men so different? And this cell block, why is it so calm? I saw the answer to my question standing at the exit gate by the control center. There stood Captain Bill Treadwell. Lessie was right. Fairness, firmness, and respect. You see, Captain Treadwell was a builder. Instead of putting his men down, he built them up, encouraged them, praised them, and treated them with respect. And the positive effects of his actions were obvious in the behavior and attitudes of all the men in H-Block. Oh, what a difference the words we speak can make. He shook my hand and thanked me for coming. He said, Rick, you made my men feel like winners today. You brought them hope and life. I can't thank you enough. And I said, Captain Treadwell, let me thank you. You, sir, are the greatest builder I've ever seen. You have taught me a lesson today that I will never forget and need to apply in my own life. You're a real hero, Captain. And as I drove to the airport that evening to fly home, I thought that if building will work like that on death row, it's bound to work in our homes, schools, workplaces, and with families, classmates, and co-workers. This little poem helps me remember this valuable lesson. I watched them tearing a building down, a gang of men in a busy town. With a ho-heave-ho and a lusty yell, they swung a beam and a sidewall fell. I asked the foreman, are these men skilled? The men you'd hire if you had to build? He gave me a laugh. He said, no, indeed. 
Just common labor is all I need, for I can easily reckon a day or two what builders have taken years to do. And I thought to myself as I went my way, which of these roles have I tried to play? Am I a builder who works with care, measuring life by the rule and square, shaping my deeds to a well-made plan, carefully doing the best I can? Or am I a wrecker walking the town, content with the labor of tearing down? After meeting Captain Trudwell, it's been a simple choice for me. I'm going to be a builder, and you can too. Here's how. Picture every person you meet as though they were wearing a tattoo that reads MMFI, which stands for Make Me Feel Important. Make others feel important. Remind them of their talents, their worth. Put them up, not down, and provide love and encouragement. That's what building is all about and it can be accomplished simply by the words we speak. All right, friends, that's Rick Nielsen, and he has a blueprint for life, designs for successful living, and if you follow these designs, you'll be successful in what you do. If you'll notice what Rick was all about, he was all about others. Helping others is God's design for us to have a successful life. So Rick is available to come to your church or your event that you have planned. He is a great speaker. So do me a favor and give Rick a call at 515-299-0852. Or log on to Rick's website, blueprintforlife.org. Give Rick a call right now. You'll be glad you did. I might live for thee 
others others let this my motto be help me live for others i might live for thee help me live for others i might live for thee well friends i want to ask you the most important question of your life are you saved i'm not asking you if you're a good person or if you go to church i'm asking are you saved if you died right now, would you go to heaven? If you was at the gates of heaven and St. Peter asked you, why should I let you into heaven, what would you say? What would the answer be? Do you know the answer? The Bible says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The Bible says the wages of sin is death, and death is the separation from God, and separation from God is an eternity in hell. That's bad news. But I've got some good news for you. The good news of the Bible is that God loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. In Romans chapter 10, verse 9, the Bible says that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. The scripture says, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. There is no difference between Jews or Greeks, rich or poor, the same Lord over all. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Are you saved? If you're not sure, if you're not living for Jesus, pray this prayer with me right now. Oh God, I know I'm a sinner. I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I believe His shed blood, death, burial, and resurrection was just for me. I now receive Him as my Savior. Thank you, Lord. Forgive me for my sins. I receive this gift of salvation and everlasting life because of your mercy and your grace. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Hello, Jesus. Yes, it's really me. After all the wrong I've done, Lord I guess you're surprised to see me Here at your altar Like a beggar on bended knees Who's come here to beg you, oh Lord Please, please forgive me I can't make it without you, Jesus Yes, I finally see So let me surrender My life to you And Jesus, Jesus, please forgive me I've learned the truth about Satan's so-called good life Oh, it was just a candle It was just a candle Too short to burn through the night Now I'm here in the darkness And I come to you and plead Oh, light my life Oh, light my life And Jesus, please forgive me Oh, please forgive me I can't make it without you, Jesus 
Yes, I finally see So let me confess my sins And you can give me eternal life And Jesus, please, please Please, please forgive me All right, friends, if you prayed and asked Jesus Christ into your heart, then we want you to give us a call. Our phone number is 618-383-2107, and we're going to end today's program like we end most of our programs. That's with my testimony in song that I wrote with the help of my songwriting partner, Tom Caldwell, and now we've got a new songwriting partner, Dennis McKay, and he has helped us with this song and brought it up to a new level. Here's... Dennis McKay with At the Foot of the Tree. And yes, you'll be able to get a copy of this CD by calling us 618-383-2107. Here's Dennis McKay with At the Foot of the Tree. At the crossroads of life Lost without hope Eighteen wheels of lonesome At the end of the road In my hand was a track The preacher had read His words still echoing In the back of my head I felt so ashamed When I thought of my past I called his name This chance would it be my last Then I saw Jesus Hanging on that tree I lifted up my heart From down on my knees Today I met Jesus At the foot of the cross Broken-hearted and lonesome So long I've been lost I left a lifetime of misery At the foot of the tree Those 18 wheels are rolling that old lonesome road And I shared the good news Wherever I go Yes, there's been a change I'm not the man I used to be And I tell everybody What's happened to me How oh, I felt so ashamed When I thought of my past but I called his name This chance Could it be my last Then I saw Jesus Hanging on that tree And I lifted up my heart From down on my knees Today I met Jesus At the foot of the cross Broken-hearted and lonesome So long I've been lost I left a lifetime of misery At the foot of the tree Then I saw Jesus Hanging on that tree I lifted up my heart From down on my knees Today I met Jesus Foot of the cross Broken-hearted and lonesome So long I'd been lost I left a lifetime of misery At the foot of the tree
Hey drivers, this is Chaplain Gary Rayburn, Lonesome Road Ministries, Church on the Road Radio, and we want to hear from you. Give us a shout. Our phone number is 618-383-2107 or log on to lonesomeroad.org. And if you can't give us a call, then just blow your air horn as you're driving by. Oh 